Amen. Well, yeah, like Drew said, my name is Michael. I'm the youth pastor around here, which means I have the best job on staff. I get to have a lot of fun and get paid for it, which is sweet. Um, But I also love just getting a chance to invest in students and this next generation um, and help them treasure Jesus like we were talking about. And so today I have the privilege of sharing from the word of God with you guys. And I brought an old friend up here with me. Um, I know some of you are probably twitching right now because it says angels. It's okay. I don't know what that is. Um, If you don't know me, I know almost nothing about sports, or at least next to nothing. But uh, it says angels on it, and I bought it when I was 16. I know this is baseball because there's a baseball on it. Um, And I I needed a hat. I was going to camp, and I'm like, I need a hat so I can wear a hat so I don't have to shower. Um, And so I buy the hat. Throw it on, go to camp. It said angels, so I thought, oh, it's kind of Christian-y, right? Like Christian angels, right? And so I wore it at camp. I, then I came back, and I just kept wearing it. and wear it all the time. Um, but eventually, it retired and became my camp hat. And so whenever I go to a camp or whatever, I bring the camp hat with me. It used to be very white. Um, not so much anymore. There's still the cardboard in there because, you know, got to keep it fresh. And so this was my, this is my old hat. Uh, and it's a good old hat. It's, it's actually my favorite hat. But I think sometimes uh, when we think about life, when we think about this idea of an old hat, it can also have a negative connotation, right? And so I've titled the message today, uh, Message Over Miracles, Volume 24. Because this is, if you've been here for a while, the 24th time you're going to hear this. Um, I count it. I went back through Luke, and there's at least 24 different times where there's a miracle and there's a message that follows. Now, for some of you who are here, and maybe you're new, this is the first time you're going to hear it. I hope that what you hear today, you're going to see who Jesus is through this story. You're going to see the power of a message that was paired with a miracle and how the gospel was preached and how people came to faith. But for some other people in this room, this might be the 24th time that you hear this. And my fear for us is that when we come to these ideas of the gospel and these things that are in the text, is sometimes they can become old hat, which a phrase today is going to mean uninteresting, predictable, tritely familiar, or old-fashioned. Sometimes we come to the word of God that way. I've heard this. I've heard message over miracles before. But my hope for us this morning, and the goal is that this would be an old hat in the good sort of way, where it's something that you can't imagine camp without. It fulfills a purpose. It's trustworthy. It's worn. You you treasure it on some level. And so sometimes what happens is when we think about the idea of repentance or confession or faith, even miracles, they can be kind of relegated to the under the bed kind of thing or the shelf thing. And we just go about our day as though this faith isn't real or as though this faith doesn't matter. But what we're going to see today in the text is that that faith is real and it matters, but it's also old and it's good that it's old. So here's a summary statement for today. It says, Peter and John, while living communitas, which is a word we wish we made up. Um, I think it's Latin, something like that. Yeah, Latin. Uh, and, And the idea is basically a community that's more than just a community. It's an intentional community. It's a like we pick up our shovels and we work hard together kind of community. It's a we're on the same team, we bleed together kind of community. That's communitas. If you want to buy a t-shirt, they're out there at 10 bucks. Um, But that's what they're living out, this new faith, this communitas. And they're interrupted on their way to the temple by a divine appointment. You could call it a divine interruption by a man who was lame from birth. And they heal this man by the power and the name of Jesus, demonstrating that this new faith, this new communitas that they're living is a real faith. 
And then the mended man begins jumping around for the first time in his life, celebrating what God has done. This leads to an opportunity for Peter to share with the crowds in the temple that this new faith is really an old faith. And so I'm going to read the text. There's a lot of text, and then we will pray and get right into it. Acts chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered into the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Now while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to him in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over to be denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man a perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until a time for restoring of all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are sons of the prophet and of the covenant that God made with your fathers saying to Abraham and in your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And so God, we pray this morning as we look at your word and as we um, just explore this miracle that happened and the message that follows. I pray, Jesus, that you would show us what part in our hearts need repentance. That you would show us what aspects of our life we need to surrender to you as a result of the miracle of the life that you've given us and the miracle of what you've done in your son Jesus. And so I pray that these truths would sink into our hearts and into our minds and you would provide the lasting change that only you can do 
Spirit. And we pray this in your son's name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, Acts 3, chapter 1. Kicks off with Peter and John. They're going to the temple around the ninth hour, which all of us know is 3 p.m. So it's 3 p.m. and they're heading in and they see this man who's lame from birth. Now in their culture, if somebody was lame from birth, it's probably because their parents did something wrong or their parents' parents did something wrong or their parents' parents did something wrong. They would have thought that that type of disability was a result of sin. Now, whether that was true or not, it's something they believed, and it's something they would have thought and treated somebody in the light of. And so when they look at this man who's lame from birth, he would have been ostracized from society, would have been cast out, wouldn't have a lot of the same privileges as other people had. And this man has to lay at the temple asking for money every day. And so this man who's lame from birth, he has a group of people who's somehow helping him out, right? It says he's being carried to the temple, carried daily, and he's laying at the beautiful gate. Now, a lot of scholars aren't exactly sure what gate this is, but it's probably a nice gate. It's probably a a really nice gate, and one that people who had money would probably walk through because it fit their, you know, their look. And so this is the gate that they're walking through. They've got money. It's a really smart place to lay if you need money, right? That makes a lot of sense. If you're begging for money, go to the rich gate. And so they're sitting at the rich gate, and he's asking for alms. Alms, if you don't know what it is, it's basically like asking for money, but it's more than that because it has a spiritual component to it. Okay, so it's basically in their, in their culture, in their religion, and almsgiving is giving out of their spiritual like, goodness. So they see somebody in need, they give them money because it's the right thing to do as a pious Jew. And so that's what he's kind of counting on while he's sitting there at these temple gates. I mean, they're going to pray, they're going to give these sacrifices, and he's laying there asking for money, asking for alms. And so he sees Peter and John walk through. They're coming into the temple, and as they walk in, he says, hey, can I have money? Can I have some alms? And here's what happens next. I love what they do. It says that they directed their gaze at him. They looked at him. Now, this is um, some pulpit confession time, all right? It's going to get, just hang on. Hang in there with me. Uh, so you know, pastors aren't perfect. Um, we are professional sinners saved by grace, as Drew likes to call it, uh, which just means we're just as messed up as everybody else, uh, but we get paid to be messed up. So that is what pastors do. There's, there's still a lot of OST that needs to happen in my life, ongoing spiritual transformation, okay? And so this is a story of a time when that was very obvious. So um, I, I was sitting there on a Friday, just trying to get a little bit of extra work done. Um, I was going to meet up with a volunteer that we're kind of training up to do speaking and stuff for our student ministries. So it's real, like, gospel work, man. All right, serious. And so I'm sitting in the office prepping, and I hear somebody knock on the door. I'm like, on a Friday? Can't you read the sign? It says Monday through Thursday, okay? That's on purpose. Like, go away. And so the person keeps knocking and knocking. I'm like, okay, they're going to leave at some point, right? I can just keep doing the Lord's work here, typing away, getting ready, and this person's going to leave. And then my uh, little protege shows up, and he comes by the window, and he knocks. He's like, hey, there's somebody out there who needs help. Oh, man. I realize I've really messed this one up. And now, because of the Pharisee in me, I have to be a good person. And so I stand up like, yeah, let's go help him. I didn't hear. Um, And we go out, (laughs) and we begin to talk to this person. And I'm really glad that happened. Like, I'm really glad that, that I, we did choose to allow for that interruption because that actually was the Lord's work. 
That actually was what mattered in that moment. It didn't matter the other just pointless things I was working on. What mattered was being there with that person who was in a moment of need. If you've ever done ministry to the homeless or ministry with the poor, you know that connecting with them, just even just looking somebody in the eye, it humanizes somebody. I mean, these are people that are walked by on a daily basis. People avoid eye contact. They're afraid they just want a handout or they're going to use it for something they shouldn't. And they can feel invisible. They can feel like nobody cares, that nobody wants to talk to them, that they don't matter. And so what we did is we stood there and we listened to this person's story. They're like, yeah, I got robbed last night. I don't have any money. I need a place to stay. And so we called this place that offers emergency housing and we got them set up. But that moment is a moment where you humanize somebody. And that's what these guys are doing. They were willing to stop. They were willing to take the divine interruption when they were on the way doing the work of the ministry, right? In Acts 2, it talks about how they went to the temple every day to pray and to do these things of God that were a part of this new faith. And yet they were willing to stop. And they were willing to be in that moment. And as they look at him, they say, look at us. It's another invitation into intimacy. It's not just just leaving it at their like kind of gawking at him, but they invite a connection And you've got to imagine, this is a guy who's been lame from birth. He's never walked before. He depends on others for his very well-being in a very real way. They have to carry him to this gate so he can ask for money. And so you can imagine, maybe he was looking down, or maybe he wasn't looking up, just holding out his hand, asking for money, and yet they say, look, come talk to me. And and maybe when that moment happened, maybe something ran through his mind like, this is the mother load. Okay, they're talking to me this time. Like most people just walk by and toss a few coins. But these guys said, hey, look at me real quick. This is going to be sweet. I'm really going to score this time. And then uh, Peter kind of bursts his bubble a little bit and says, I have no silver and gold. Great. Thanks, buddy. And now you stopped me. I, I was doing my thing. Can you just move along? He says, I don't have any silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I love it. This week at base camp, we talked about the greatest treasure and how the greatest treasure is Jesus. So we were teaching our kids, that's what we need to learn as well, right? That the greatest thing we have is Jesus. Now, the reality is, is that Luke isn't writing a polemic about like homeless ministry and how you're supposed to do that. And, you know, don't give people money, just give them Jesus. It's okay to provide physical help. It's okay to also provide spiritual help, right? But what's happening here is you see the power of Jesus at work. He picks him up by the hand, right? He grabs him by the hand and the man immediately stands up. His feet are strong. His ankles are strong. And Luke, he's a doctor. He wants us to be certain about this kind of thing. He wants us to be able to trust it. So some of the language he's using here is, is, uh, is medical in its nature. It's like saying the fibia, tibia, libia, whatever they're called, right? Like whatever those are, those are healed. And he's standing up. His ankles were made strong. This guy's healed. And here's what happens next in verse eight. He begins leaping the man jumps. Like, I would have jumped too, man. But, but maybe, you know, you'd think of baby steps. No, he's jumping. He's up, and he begins to walk into the temple for the first time unassisted by anybody. This is huge, especially for somebody in Jewish culture. They can now go into this place where God is worshipped. And so he goes inside, and he's walking, and he's leaping, and he's praising God. Anybody getting flashbacks to Sunday school? Okay, good. So there's a song. Don't worry about it, guys. Um, so there's a song. He gets up. He's, ru- he's running. He's leaping. He's praising. And he's talking like, God, this is so incredible what's happened. He's celebrating what happened. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. This is so cool. 
these people who would have passed him almost on a daily basis. This is the time of the day where you'd go to like, offer prayers and sacrifice. They probably passed this guy before. They probably knew lame Bob. He sits there at the gate asking for money. And yet there he is running around, jumping, praising God. And they're blown away. They're filled with wonder and amazement at what happened, which is so cool. It's so cool that God chose to do it at this exact moment, too. Isn't that kind of interesting? Like we don't know how far away this is from the sermon in Acts 2.42. We don't know if it's like right after or if there was a week or two in between. We don't know. But what we can assume is that they may have seen him before. And we also know that people have seen him before. And yet God chose this exact moment to perform this miracle because of the message. That's why he chose to do this. Because what's about to follow, what Peter's about to talk about is going to lead to the salvation of thousands of people when they hear it. He's going to invite them to repent to turn to Jesus. And it's all because of this miracle that happens where they see the power of God and they're filled with this wonder and amazement. And so this first section that Luke writes is to show us this, that this new faith is a real faith. This new faith is a real faith. It can, it can be counted on. It's trustworthy. It's true. It actually makes a difference. The name of Jesus is actually changing this person. The name of Jesus is actually changing this kind of informal group of people who followed around Jesus into a communitas, a real community. People who are, who are picking up arms and serving together and following after him. It's a real faith. It really makes a difference. And so there's this really cool picture that happens in the, in the next verse, verse 11. It says that he clung to Peter and John. Can you guys imagine that? Like he was jumping around, now he's just like hugging these guys. Like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And so he's latching on to him, holding on to them. And the people start to come together in the portico called Solomon's. It's basically a section of the temple where there were these pillars and stuff, kind of like a hallway. They're standing there and they're about to, something's going to happen, right? People start coming and everybody's blown away at this. And Peter looks at everybody and he's like, none of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety that we have made him walk? They were confusing the miracle, right? I saw the miracle happen, but then they're thinking, oh, well, maybe it's because these guys have power or these guys have piety, so we need to listen to them for that reason. But what Peter does is he doesn't make much of himself. He's going to make much of Jesus. And he's going to say, actually, it's all because of Jesus that this thing happened. And so here's what happens in verse 13. He says, look, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, this is the calling card of God. It's his business card. When you see it, it's like, this is Yahweh, the one true God. It's who he's talking about. He says, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. He glorified his servant, Jesus. He's pulling on some Old Testament imagery from the book of Isaiah, this idea of a servant that would come, that would liberate God's people through suffering, and he would restore things to the way they're supposed to be. He says, he glorified his servant whom you delivered. This is where he like really directs it at him. And on a very re- in a very real sense, they did deliver Jesus up. Like some of them may have been there when that happened, but also on a, on a theological level, they're all guilty of Jesus being delivered up. And when he says you, it also kind of means us. Because the reality is the reason why Jesus was delivered up is because of the sin and the brokenness and the rebellion that is within the heart of every man, woman, and child. That's the reason why he was delivered up. And we're guilty of the same thing. We're guilty of the same brokenness. 
It's because of us that he was delivered up. It's because of these people who were standing here that he was delivered up. And they rejected him. It says, you denied the holy and the righteous one. This, again, it's one, of, it's one of his calling cards. This is a term that was referred to for the suffering servant, that he was the holy and the righteous one of God. It's a special term reserved for him, saying this is, this is the servant. And then you asked for a murderer instead, and you killed the author of life. It's heavy. I was studying one time a few years back, and I remember reading through that. And for some reason, that phrase just like stuck out at me. I was like, you killed the author of life. There's some, there's some sort of like poetic irony about it, right? This idea that God engineered life. He invented it. He conceptualized it. He came up with it, right? He came up with photosynthesis. He came up with the way that your cells work. He came up with the way that our galaxies spin together. He engineered life. He came up with the way that we exist, the way that we do, our, the way that we do everything, right? He engineered every little piece of life as we know it. And yet the author of that, the creator of that, experienced death the antithesis of life. You killed the author of life, whom God raised up from the dead. That's the good news of the gospel, that the author of life didn't have to taste death forever, but rose from the dead. Why? Because he's the author of life. He came up with it. He invented it, so death has no hold on him. When he died, he was easily able to resurrect from the dead because he came up with this. This was his plan. And so he raises from the dead. And it's because of that these guys are witnesses, is what they say. To this, we're witnesses. This is what we talk about. This is what we preach, that the author of life was killed but came back. And it's by his name, by faith in his name, this powerful name, this name that can save, this name that is real, this name that makes a difference. That he has made strong the man whom you see and you know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. It's awesome. This isn't just like a healing on a scale of 1 to 10. How much better do you feel right now? No, this is a full-blown, he was lame and now he can jump. Big change. In the presence of all of you, this has happened. In the presence of all of you, you see how this man has been healed. And it's all so that you would know the power and the name of Jesus. That's why God did this. He's clarifying it for them. He's telling them the message behind this miracle so that they can respond to it. And here's what happens in verse 17. He says, and now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance. I mean, Jesus only said it a couple times that he was a Messiah. But I know you acted in ignorance. You didn't know you were killing the Savior. You didn't know you were killing the suffering servant. And your rulers didn't really know it either. But God. If you're new around here at Vintage Grace, but God is kind of like a, a mantra of ours. Can we say mantra? It's kind of, okay, we'll say mantra. It's like a mantra of ours. We picked it up in Ephesians while we were studying that as a church. We got into this text that said, but God made us alive in Christ. We were dead on the bottom of the ocean floor, but God has made us alive in Christ comes from Ephesians 2, this idea of but God, and it kind of traces throughout the whole Bible. It's all over. There's all these moments where God intervenes in the course of human history where he comes in and he says, no, this is what it's all about. And there's a but God. When the author of life dies, there's a but God that followed that up. There's a but God. He was over that entire process. He was over the entire thing. But God foretold this. He said it was going to happen. He promised it was going to happen. And all of the prophets said this as well that this Christ would suffer. Christ is another word for like Messiah or anointed one. He's referring to Jesus, that the savior, the suffering servant would suffer and he thus fulfilled. It happened. It's real. It mattered. 
It actually came to pass, and it's something that was promised long, long ago. And so if this is true, if this message behind the miracle is true, the only thing that makes sense for us to do is to repent. That's it. That's how simple he says it. He says, so repent, therefore. It's a word that just means to turn from or to change one's mind, to to believe something new about it, to leave behind the past. He says, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Um, Man, we had this cornhole set here at Vintage Grace for a while. It's back now. Um, But what happened was it got vandalized, all right? used to have these uh, Niner colors. Niners are good, right? Okay. Niner colors were on there, and it got painted Dodger blue. Yeah. yeah. Mm. All right. So (laughs) I know know better. I know that Dodger blue needs to be blotted out, okay? And so there was this Dodger blue cornhole set, and some gracious saint decided to re-vandalize it and turn it into the VG colors. And so they like took the, the cornhole set, they painted it. I heard it took two coats of primer and three coats of the actual paint to get it close, but you can still kind of see the insignia through the paint. It's hard to blot out sin, man. It's hard to blot it out. But the power, the power and the name of Jesus can And repenting from our sins and turning to him. That's what can blot out the power and the weight of sin in our life, our brokenness, or the things that we're slaves to, our addictions, our issues, our broken relationships. All those things can experience a time of refreshing because of what Jesus has done. So he says that this time of refreshing is going to follow by the presence of the Lord. This is the Holy Spirit he's talking about. He's saying the Holy Spirit's going to come and you're going to experience refreshing. Now, we've been kind of using this analogy of the Holy Spirit with the chocolate milk, right? We got the, we got the milk, got the chocolate sauce in there, and some of us just need to get that thing stirred up, you know what I mean? <laughs> but maybe we're afraid, or maybe we're not sure how to tap into that time of refreshing, or how to ask God to do that within us, but it's really simple. It's right here, right? Repent and turn to him and ask for that refreshing. Allow him to do that work in our lives. And he wants to do that in your life. He wants to bring times refreshing. He wants to change your affections and to create new desires within you that reflect the kingdom and his way of living. It's a time of refreshing that comes through the presence of the Lord, through the Holy Spirit. And then he says, look, this is why this is happening. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. He's saying, look, Jesus did all this amazing stuff and he's gonna hang tight for a second. He's gonna be in heaven. He's gonna wait and then he's gonna come back. And when he comes back, you're gonna see the fullness of the kingdom. Right now, we see in part. Right now, we see through a mirror dimly. But then you're gonna see this restoring of all things, this fixing of the issues that we see around our world. We're gonna see him do that. He will come back. But in the meantime, we're in this period of the refreshing of the spirit where we join with him in the redemption of all things through allowing him to refresh our souls and allowing that to spill out. It's being the living proof of God's love here and now as we await this time when he comes to restore all things. And Peter's not done, man. That was fire, but he's gonna keep going. In the next verse, here's what he says. He says, Moses said, this is like, Moses is their guy, man. Moses is their guy. They love Moses. Moses is their dude. He's calling back to Moses. He says, look, Moses said this, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. 
And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Here's what he's doing. He's taking these two verses from the Old Testament, one from Deuteronomy, one from Leviticus, and he's showing the people he's talking to how this all points to Jesus, how this was always about him, how it's going to be about him forever, how everything centers around his throne like we sing about. He says, look, even Moses was pointing towards something, and that something is Jesus. And there's no amount of hereditary genetic faith that you can count on. You can't just be like, oh, I was Jewish, or yeah, I can trace my lineage back to Joseph, or I, can, I, I was a part of the temple ceremonies. He's saying, no, if you don't listen to the words of the prophet, no amount of ethnicity or, or religious action or whatever is going to save you. It's only through following Jesus. I was there the whole time. But he desperately wants his audience to get this, because we've got to remember, he's talking to a predominantly Jewish audience at this point. He's saying, look, nothing from you just having the right look is going to get you into heaven. It's all about following Jesus. It's always been about him, and it will always be about him. He goes on to say, and all the prophets have spoken from Samuel, and those who came after him proclaimed these days. That's good. That's a good thing, right? The whole of the Old Testament was pointing to this pivotal moment in which he would come and set free from our bondage of sin so that we could live in that refreshing to be able to be restored by him. And now he says a good kind of you. This is the good you. He says, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant. This promise is for you first. You get to hear this first. God made this promise to your fathers by saying to Abraham, like he's going way back now. He said to Abraham that the world would be blessed by your offspring. Some translations say seed. This is a promise that came so long ago, early in Genesis, where we hear about how God would save the world through this seed of Abraham, that the nations would be blessed there would be a blessing that follows. And that blessing, that blessing is actually really clear here. It says that the blessing is that we would turn every one of us from our wickedness. That we wouldn't be stuck in sin. That we would see this blessing of being able to live as a part of the kingdom. I don't think Peter totally got what he was saying at this point. When he said, like, it first comes to us and then to the world. But I think what Luke is trying to show us is that this gospel was always for everyone. Always. And it's at this moment when they begin to understand the breadth of God's salvation and his plan of redemption. So Peter's preaching these ideas and he he says this thing. He says, so repent, every one of you. Turn from your wickedness. Experience the blessing that is in this promise. And here's, here's the great thing that happens. People responded. I don't get to preach it this week, which I'm kind of bummed about, but Drew does next week. Um, and it's in Acts 4. And what we'll see is that thousands come to faith. And it really shakes things up. It really shakes things up where they're at. All these people begin to respond. They repent. They saw the miracle. They heard the message. And it clicked. And so we see from this half of the text that this new faith is really an old faith. And that's a good thing. It's a good kind of old hat. It's the old hat that you want. <laughs> it's the old hat that you want to wear when you go to camp. It's the old hat you want to take with you. It's the good kind of old, and there's a reason for that. Let's look at some of the implications. We'll get there. In the implications, it says this. The first one is, what's good about a new faith? What's good about it being new? Well, there's a lot that's good about it being new. First of all, Jesus came to this earth. That was new, right? He eternally exists with the Father as the Son. He was always the Son. He will always be the Son. And yet he came to this earth, and that was new. 
That was something that was waited for for a long, long time. And yet he came and it was new. What else is new? There's a blotting out. There's a wiping away. There's the grace of God that can be experienced in a way like never before, where our sins can be cast as far from us as the east is from the west, which if you don't know your directions, that's really far. We don't have to live that way any longer, but yet God will blot those things out where the pain and the suffering and and these these things that maybe we've caused and we've initiated, there's an answer for it. And that answer is the power of the name of Jesus, which meets us in those places and actually gives us the power to move through the pain and the power to overcome our own things that we cause. Forgiveness and grace, that's unparalleled. That's life-changing. There's also a blessing of the earth. This, this is for everybody. That's kind of what was new. They're like, before they thought it was mainly just for the Jews, and now they see that, hey, it's actually for everyone today, even in 2018 in El Dorado Hills. And they see the beginning of this kingdom movement. That's going to make a difference for years and years to come into eternity because of the work of the Holy Spirit within this new community. And so what's good about it being a real faith? There's a lot that's good about it being a real faith. First of all, we see that it's for today. It actually matters today. The power of Jesus is for us where we are in this very moment. The name of Jesus brings hope to the hopeless. The man who had to be carried every single day to beg That power was for him. That power is for us today. Whatever our kind of begging looks like in life, that power is for us today. The power of the name of Jesus. It makes a difference in the here and now. Romans 8.11 says that the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead now lives in us. I don't even know how to wrap my mind around that. The idea that the Holy Spirit is here and is accessible to us and that we can live in that reality. So what's good about it being an old faith? Well, old things are actually pretty cool. Uh, We did name our church Vintage Grace because old was hip when that started. Um, And it will be hip. But what's good about it being an old faith? Well, first of all, we see that God's trustworthy. We can count on him. We can trust that what he said will happen. He came through on his promises. It's stuff that he said so long ago, and yet it came through. He was sovereign over the plan of salvation. He was sovereign over that lame beggar being there at that exact moment. He planned it. It wasn't an afterthought. He didn't just kind of come up with it on a whim. This was his plan from the get-go. To, to redeem all things. He planned the blessing that people receive. And if we've seen him do it then, if we've seen him be faithful then, the heart that we see in this old faith is that he will do it again. Is that he's faithful and his promises come through. We can trust him. And that's something that we desperately need today is a God that we can trust. And so the last one that I think is also for us today is this idea of repentance. I was reading the other day, um, I was kind of being a little convicted about how much does the gospel really shape community for me? As I think about like my life group and, and the people we're with, how much does the idea of like repentance or confession or faith, how much does that actually shape us as people? When was the last time that I repented to my life group of something? Or, or when was the last time that I confessed something to my life group? That, these questions started rolling through my head. And I think part of what's so important about this, this old hat kind of message is that the repentance doesn't just kind of stop like at day one of your faith journey or or day whatever of your faith journey. It's something that becomes a rhythm of our life where the gospel forms us as people. 
we, we continue to repent. And it's, it's not for salvation, but it's for saying, yeah, I'm being saved. I'm continuing to become more and more like Jesus. And so I turn from these things that don't matter. And I allow the gospel to form my life where the habits and the practices of my everyday rhythms are actually informed by him. They're informed by these ideas that are wrapped up in the gospel that were made real right in front of people. And that we get to see today in stories, like the story that Kara shared this morning where somebody got to taste a little bit of the kingdom for the first time, right? They got to see a little bit of the joy in Jesus. And who knows where that's gonna go? God does, right? He's over this whole thing and he's who we trust with our lives. He's who we treasure and he's who we worship. And so this morning, as we worship him with this next song, we're gonna talk, there's gonna be some truths in there. We're gonna talk about some truths, right? It's called This I Believe. You're gonna see some truths that for you might be kind of old hat. The idea that he descended into darkness and rose a victorious light, it might be old hat, but my hope for you is that it would be more like an old hat. Well-worn, trustworthy, something you can count on, something that does what it is that it promised it would do. So that's my prayer for us this morning as we worship him together.